0: Apple presents events at the Apple Store. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, NPR's Petra Mayer.
1: Hi. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for coming out to see us tonight. Um, I'm kind of the staff geek at NPR Books, If it's sci-fi, fantasy, thriller, romance, Jane Austen fanfic, because that's a thing, it's my beat, uh, which is why I'm incredibly excited tonight to welcome two true geek heroes, geek heroes and so much more. Uh, Gillian Anderson's work as Dana Scully in The X-Files was a formative experience for, I'm guessing, 95% of us here tonight, (laughs) me included. Uh, She's been in countless stage and TV productions, including Hannibal, A Streetcar Named Desire, and now the hit BBC series, The Fall. Jeff Robin, yeah, woo. <laughs> but you should also cheer for her co-author, Jeff Robin. He's a veteran novelist, comics writer, editor, and, oh my God, he worked for the Weekly World News. Dude, can I touch you? Wait, that's creepy. Uh, anyways, together, they probably fight crime, but they're definitely the authors of the new sci-fi thriller, A Vision of Fire. Welcome to the stage, Gillian Anderson and Jeff Robin. I understand you're gonna get started with a reading. Can you tell us uh, what you're gonna start with? No.
0: Oh, it's a secret, okay. (laughs) But I will start. Arnie was a synesthete, having always experienced one sense accompanied by another, especially colors with odors and sounds. The kids in elementary school used to call him Nutso because he used his Crayolas to illustrate what he smelled heard, and tasted. This produced rhapsodic little works of art that no one understood, but everyone responded to. His mother had always said that she, he should become an artist. She was one of the few parents, he suspected, who had ever regretted that her son elected instead to become a PhD. Flora had found his synesthesia fascinating and potentially useful. He was convinced that this... Not his strong but less than brilliant postgrad record had scored him this job. That, plus the fact that she needed someone willing to work in the opposite of an ivory tower, he thought, a scientific wine cellar. The smell down here registered in his peripheral vision as straight, metallic, bright yellow lines. They didn't impede his work and didn't bother him until he'd put in over eight hours. Then they became constricting, like neon prison bars. Arnie had turned on a jazz playlist from his iPod to add a thin purple nebula to the yellow lines haunting his vision. Now he unplugged it, sending the basement into into sepulchral silence. There had once been a pendulum clock rescued from a decommissioned train terminal but when that died flora replaced it with a silent red display on the wall like the countdown clock at cape canaveral arnie stretched reviewing what his day's work had produced little more than confirmation of what they already knew he had shaved a slice of rock from one unmarked corner of the card-sized stone and hunkered over it with a light microscope to affirm that, yes, as the weight and location had suggested, it was a palisite meteorite with a nickel-iron matrix and olivine crystals, and a bit of chromite as well. He had dug out a minuscule sample of the substance instead inside the carvings and run chemical tests, affirming that, no, they still had no idea what kind of tool had made them. There was no trace of non-indigenous stone or metal, no hint of thread from a cloth or fur from a pelt that may have been used to smooth it. Arnie admitted to himself that a dull familiarity had set in when he compared this object with the others in the group's collection. Whether in stone or other metal or clay or eroded alabaster or even rotted wood, the carvings were all alike in terms of relative size and depth. The only thing that altered between them was the arrangement of carvings. Still wearing his latex gloves, he stowed the object in a large safe with the other eight objects. "'Cras dies novus est,' he said, quoting one of Flora's favorite Latin expressions. "'Tomorrow is a new day.'" It always put an unapologetic, unbeaten cap to the day. Arnie flicked off the light. Just one stop in the locker room and he would be out of this sharp air and onto a nice, pungent uptown bus. He emailed his friend Biwan to tell him he was on his way. Hanging up his lab coat, he pulled a new white button-down shirt from his locker. He was tired, but tired was the best way to enjoy uranium. A throwback to the 1980s with disco music and black lights to make its cocktails glow. The sounds and tastes would become colors, unimpeded, and he'd finally relax. Arnie started to close his locker door and then stopped, going still. The electronics. In the plane. In the lab. A bloody meteorite. Of all the tests they'd tried on the carved objects, they'd never checked to see if the objects were radioactive. There was no reason to. Everyone knew that palisite meteorites weren't radioactive, not enough to speak of, but everyone knew were words of death in scientific research. He would take more than a minute to grab a Geiger counter and wave the wand over the object. Arnie opted not to change clothes again. He returned to the lab, flicked on the lights, and found one of the group's Geiger counters. He retrieved the meteorite and placed it on the work table, then waved the Geiger wand in front of it. The count of ionizing events, evidence of radioactivity, was almost non-existent. The Geiger produced a couple dull clicks at a limping, almost dead pace, generating one or two light brown spots in the corner of Arnie's vision, nothing to get excited about. Arnie heard a ring, damn, his phone back in the locker room No matter. It was probably B-1 saying he would meet him at the club, was already in line. Arnie had to hurry. He gave the wand one last sweep. Suddenly, brown drops began pattering in Arnie's vision like rain. He heard dull clicks at a rapid pace. The Geiger counter's needle was beginning to twitch toward the right of of the gauge, even though that was impossible. An object couldn't suddenly... ...develop radioactivity. This... Then his synesthesia created a thin gray fog... ...with black edges in his peripheral vision. Okay, that's just crazy, he said. The gray fog was his unvarying response... ...to recorded spoken voices... ...not the clicks that emanated from the Geiger counter. No, he said out loud. These aren't clicks coming from the machine... They were dull, soft voices coming from the stone. He moved closer, bent lower. There was no doubt about it. They were like voices in the wind. The chanting of angels came to mind. Arnie practiced no religion nor believed in supernatural beings, but there the voices were. He drew a sharp breath as the carvings began to pulse, not with his synesthetic lights, but with an internal luminescence ivory white. The symbols were lighting up in a non-linear order, each carving showing a soft visual pulse with every corresponding sound. The tones themselves were fractionally louder now. They reminded Arnie of language tapes. Native pronunciation slowed for the, for the novice, but he immediately squashed that thought. The human propensity for personification meant that any unidentified sound resembling vocalization would automatically be interpreted as words and language. That was wishful, not scientific. He felt in his pocket for his phone. He had to record this. His phone was in his locker. He reached over and rebooted his tablet. There was an audio recorder built in. When it turned back on, Arnie picked up the meteorite and turned it over, trying to see if there was a point of origin for the hum. He discovered that the stone was vibrating, but not in a way that could be producing the tone. The buzz was more like a mild electric current than a cell phone. It was not unpleasant to the touch. It was soothing, in fact. It made him want to hold it. it. The current seemed to magnify inside his body as though triggering his own energy centers the top of his skull his forehead his throat his heart again arnie heard voices his orientation with the image changed it tilted suddenly in an uncanny lockstep with the sounds so that arnie was looking up specifically at a stone pillar about three stories high It was tipped with something glinting green that made him think of the ovaline crystals, olivine crystals inside the meteorite. He looked around and saw that similar stone pillars circled the city. And then the sky seemed to burst red again across its huge expanse. The landscape shifted, revealing a street, a route, at the end of which was white and blue in a riot of motion. This was not him. This was not his synesthetic response. The colors, the images, the sounds, they were all coming from the rock. What are you, Arnie demanded. But he never got the answer, never saw what was at the end of the route. Suddenly, his right brain and left brain ceased functioning together. His right brain continued to view the image. His left brain died and he could no longer think to himself about what he was seeing. The right side of his body crumpled so quickly that he fell to the floor. Colors from all over the spectrum flooded his vision, but he could not summon the ability to scream. Then just as suddenly, all the colors stopped, every sensation stopped, and he no longer felt his body touching the floor, no longer felt his body at all. Arnie experienced an overpowering urge to sleep. His eyes were shut, but he still saw for another moment. Then his medulla melted and his corpus callosum, his thalamus, and his pons, and he stopped breathing even as his heart rate exploded. Moments later, he was dead, a trickle of blood and liquid brain dripping from his nose onto the collar of his new white shirt.
1: now that we're all suitably terrified. Uh, I I love that scene actually, because it encapsulates so many of the things that I love about the book, which is the the meticulous research, meticulous, incredibly broad research combined with a real punch of terror at the end. Um, But we have started kind of in medias res. Can you sort of, I know you've given the spiel for the plot of the book about 18,000 times at this point, but would you just put it in a little context for us? What's, What's leading up to that scene? Well, you know,
0: I've actually been talking about it quite a lot, but I I would actually like to hear um, Jeff talk about it. It'd be nice to hear Jeff's version of what this book is about.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, hello, everyone. Thank you for coming. Uh, this uh, novel is the first novel of a trilogy, and uh, we have children, uh, teenagers all over the world who are experiencing uh, strange phenomena inside their brain inside their bodies and it comes to the attention of a new york-based psychiatrist uh, outside of whose experience all of these phenomena lie uh, but she realizes she has to tackle them and the more involved she becomes with these kids uh, the the stranger her experience becomes within the novel and she travels all over the world trying to find a solution uh, the the novel tells a complete story Uh, But it sets up the much larger arc that we have for the uh, second and third novels.
1: Um, Caitlin, the hero, uh, she's a child psychologist. She travels all over the world uh, searching for the answers to this mystery. I can't help but see a couple of echoes to characters you've played in the past. Uh, How much of you is there in in Caitlin? I know you've also said that you'd like to play her if there was a movie adaptation.
0: I don't know. It's, It's a tricky one because what interests me about any of the characters that I choose to play or create is what's not similar about them to me. And so I feel like we created somebody that um, obviously was going to have um, some similarities, but but um, I think I need to see her separate and different from me in order to be interested in her, if that makes any sense. So... Um, That's a boring answer, but yeah.
1: (laughs) No, but it makes sense. Nobody wants to be sort of trapped in their own head all the time. Um, But let's—I do want to kind of come back to her a little bit because one thing that really struck me about her when I read the book was that she's a single mother, she has a career, and she's not tormented about any of it. She, you know, she has a support structure that she draws on. She's unapologetic about saying I need to do these things that I need to do. Uh, She's very good at juggling the disparate parts of her life. Uh, Was that a conscious choice on your part?
0: I, I would say so yes um, um, it's interesting because somebody y- yesterday uh, a guy who was interviewing me for something said yeah yeah but she's like dating unsuccessfully I was like yeah well <laughs> does that mean she's unhappy you know she is? you're right she is she's she has a a successful career she is uh, very happy on the home front she has a very um, um, uh, uh, present and um, and um, what's the right word? I want to say secular, but that's the wrong word. But um, um, uh, a kind of protected bu- bubble um, of a relationship with her only child and uh, single mother, and um, she has her parents who are active in in um, in helping out when she leaves town, and she's she's um, very happy in her world and and the situation.
2: Yeah, I would, I would add to that, um, she's constantly facing, you know, muggings from uh, uh, strange forces and, and strange uh, uh, unparalleled events, uh, and so there's, there's always a moment where she has to decide whether to proceed, and then she proceeds. So, um, I think,
1: yeah. And, you know, she proceeds sort of without fear or favor. I mean, she's she's afraid. The the book talks about, you know, you talk in the book about the terror that she feels, but she goes forth and does what she needs to do, and she's quite unapologetic about it, which I really love. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about her relationship with her son um, and the fact that children are such a strong theme in this book. It's children all over the world who drive the plot. I actually think it's really interesting that Arnie, who you just read about, is an adult, and he encounters this force, and he can't survive it, but the children are the ones who can. Um, if either one of you would like to sort of address that theme.
2: Uh, well, you know, of course, one of the great works of science fiction and perhaps of all literature is Arthur Clarke's Childhood's End, and he sort of uh, uh, wrote the template of, uh, of Children in Jeopardy. Uh, but I think Jillian and I both had this world view of, uh, of the, the chaos and, and tribulations that the planet is going through and how the children inevitably are the ones who bear the brunt of it and uh, Jillian does a lot of uh, charitable work and uh, sees this firsthand. Uh, so th- it was very important for us to uh, communicate that and uh, uh, through all of these children.
1: Um, the book is very visual. When I was reading it, I could almost see this playing out in my head as a movie, these images of this civilization and of the ritual that's happening. I don't want to be too spoilery. I'm assuming you guys haven't read it, but so I'll just be very vague here. It's a very fantastically visual book, and I think it's really interesting that both of you come from very visual media, from comics, from TV, from the stage. Was that a factor in, in how you developed the book?
0: It was important to me in stepping into this that it was something that I was actively creating for a potential um, film specifically film project. Um, that was my in uh, for it, and and in creating a character that I would then play, but also creating um, scenes that were um, filmic enough to, I guess, compete with the other things that one sees uh, um, in cinemas today. Um, and so the trajectory of the trilogy um, became, with that in mind, quite... Uh, massive gargantuan and um, was something that needed to be drawn out from the very beginning um, for the three books in order to um, plot out from book one where we were headed with in mind the fact that um, uh, we'd be seeing it in in other forms
1: that's what's great about genre fiction if you can't confine your story to one book you can always do a trilogy Um, can you give us some idea of where these characters are going next I know, I had to ask. No, no, that, that's
2: a fair question. And uh, if you haven't read it, um, this answer will be of have no meaning. Um, but, uh, but I also don't wanna to give too much away. Uh, there, um, there are forces at work that uh, transcend uh, anything our heroine not only has ever experienced, but ever even imagined. And uh, I, I hope we have uh, conceived of a, of a kind of a reality that is, uh, that is different from anything you've seen. Uh, but she, she goes on, uh, on quite a journey uh, through lots of different places.
1: <laughs> well, I do notice looking at the cover of the book that it says, you know, book one of the Earth End saga. So uh, I, I feel like that maybe is giving us a hint of where we might be going.
2: <laughs> well, well, that was a carefully chosen yes. word compound word. Uh, for precisely that reason, uh, it kind of refers to one of the two poles of the planet. Oh,
1: that's interesting. Right, yeah. Oh, right, that yeah. end of if the If you will want
2: to look at it that oh, way. Oh,
1: okay, okay. I was worrying that it might be spoilery, um, which is great for me. I'm one of those people that has to read the last page of a book, so I'm okay with what's going on and then I can enjoy it.
0: Wait, the last page first? And yeah, then... yeah, yeah. Holy so next... shit. Sorry. <laughs>
1: I'm conducting an unscientific poll, actually. How do you feel about spoilers? Are you that one of those people, too? I
0: cannot understand Have I horrified that. you? <laughs> you Sorry. just completely horrified me. Yeah,
2: don't can tell you can me how it ends. We just stop this event just right crying. now.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I
1: don't tell anybody else how it ends. I just need to know for myself so that I, wow, I don't... Wow, what does that say about you? Uh, probably <laughs> that I'm a terrible person. No,
0: no, but what, I'm just curious. What oh, do you well, think that says? What, how else does that <laughs> manifest in your life? <laughs>
1: Oh, let's not go Is there. Is there anybody else who does that?
0: Is that a common thing? Raise your hands in the audience yeah. if
1: you read the last page of a book first. One, Two, three. Anybody else? Like, there are a couple of people. I'm yeah. not alone. Okay, That's really interesting. To be perfectly honest, I do it because I get so emotionally involved in books mm. that I get really upset if somebody I like dies, and I need to know right up front if they're going to make it through the end what, of the book. What do
2: you do about movies? You know, It's a sled.
1: I just deal with it. I just deal with it, and I cry a lot, and I'm really embarrassed about it. You also hey, cry at movies, or just me? Yeah, oh, yeah I cry sometimes. <laughs> so, uh, uh. All right, so, good, we've established where everybody stands on spoilers. And actually, I think it's it's uh, probably time to open things up to audience questions.
0: Hi, um, thanks for coming. My question is, what happens when you guys had a disagreement on how the plot should go forward?
2: Did you know, you, I don't, or you, did you not? Yeah, we, we didn't have a disagreement, and... Um, that I can recall, and if we did, I explained why I was thinking of something, and Jillian was very receptive to that. When she uh, disapproved of word choices, uh, we changed them because I, I saw her point of view. There was no, there was nothing abrasive at all about it. Um, that that I, I recall. I don't think
0: there was, yeah, anything. Plot-wise or anything? From from the very beginning, it was important to me that we weren't stepping into the horror realm, um, um, that it had a more spiritual and metaphysical um, uh, feel to it. Uh, um, but that was really... That was it, really.
2: Yeah, I mean, we were pretty much in sync uh, on, on, on every level. So, yeah, there was no... nothing.
1: Hi, Jillian. Um, what's the difference in how you follow book
0: reviews compared to all the others? For my in my for things that I'm involved in, right? Um, <laughs> um, I I do read reviews of things that I'm involved in um, if they're good. <laughs> I generally won't read them if they're bad. <laughs> That's terrible, but um, I yeah um and book i it's funny because i um i thought that i yeah <sighs> yeah that basically is across the line yeah i, I don't want to know but um be, i i don't want it i don't want to be influenced um yeah i i want to feel like i'm doing this uh for myself whatever this is and feel um, confident and satisfied within myself in what I am doing and not be influenced by what other people think about what I'm doing. That would imply that I care about what other people think that I'm doing, and I, on the one hand, I don't, but clearly I do. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say about that. Hi, Jillian. I, I haven't gotten to a point in the book to know if
1: um, Caitlin's son's deafness is is um, relevant to the story, but I was wondering whose idea that was, and if you are interested in Delft culture and sign language,
0: and and um, that part of the plot is very interesting to me. It it will be um, as I recall, and tell me if I'm um, wrong. But there was a. Um, uh, I think it was it was important to me from the beginning that uh, that she was a single mother, and there was a moment when we were discussing. I need to talk about this without talk about spoiling. Um, when we were discussing signing, and the um, way that signing might be helpful in the future in the story, even in the first novel, and that that could be a link to Caitlin's understanding of um, a form of signing. And again, because I was casting it in my mind, the idea of having an opportunity to cast a deaf person in a film was exciting to me in the same way that I'm excited by all the the different uh, cultures in the books and um, how many... um, uh people of color that we have basically. People around the world who can be a part of our story, are a part of our story.
1: I wanted to go back to the to the research that went into this book. I mean it's amazing. You go from Kashmir to Iran to Haiti to certain places at the ends of the earth. Uh, there's there's yeah there's meteorites, there's synesthesia, there's deaf culture. How how did the research process work? It must have been intensive.
2: It was uh, for Claire, uh, who's uh, (laughs) standing right over there. Uh, Basically, uh, she was staying uh, uh, ahead of the events uh, so that when things were needed, how long does it take to fly to Iran from uh, JFK? Uh, She had the answer for that. Uh, So she was was an integral part of uh, of this team. Thank you.
0: Hi, I'm about a uh, hundred pages into the book. I have two uh, questions about the book. How did you do the research for Caitlin in terms of the in terms of the hypnosis and the blackberries and the tapping of the ear? That's my one first question. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you stole my question, lady. Um, and my, my second job. question was, which one of you had the idea to name the beagle Jack London?
2: Uh, <laughs> actually. Uh, uh, Claire and I were working on this and recommending things that we should read and uh, we, we always like to honor some of the great uh, authors uh, on whose shoulders we stand and so that was actually her idea. Uh, the uh, the things about tapping and uh, all of that uh, were from my own experience, again I've, I've been doing martial arts for over half a century. and. Uh, as an adjunct to that, there was a lot of chakra work and energy work and that sort of thing. And so we knew, tapping as well, uh, and hypnosis, we knew that that was going to be a part of it, a, a very valid part of it, an important part of it. So um, that, was, that was the origin of that. In researching this book, uh, did you consider the theory of the psychological, social archetype of Carl Jung that all consciousness globally is linked? And are you suggesting in the uh, affectation of all the children that they're somehow linked by a larger consciousness? Uh, were you inspired by that? I mean, Gilles Verne raised that issue also. It's not common to only Carl Jung. Uh, Jung was actually uh, pretty strongly in my mind when we were doing this, also because of his theories of synchronicity. And uh, the uh, you, you really did kind of uh, crystallize one very important aspect of it. And uh, again, without getting too specific, uh, the uh, the way to combat chaos is through cooperation. And uh, so everything you just said is, is completely relevant, but I can't say more than that without giving away novels two and three. Um, first of all, I finished your novel early, earlier this morning, and it was very good. Um, You've said in the past that you're kind of drawn to, pl- drawn to playing strong female characters. And um, I think that Caitlin O'Hara kind of encompasses a lot of that. And I was wondering what you consider to be the defining characteristics of a strong woman. Well, we, we just did the panel yeah, on that. Just, that was kind of started, funny. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, we just did a, um, a panel at Comic-Con called Damsels in Distress Need Not Apply. And um, we're also talking about a couple articles that have recently been written about um, the term strong woman being as much an insult as, uh, uh, as a compliment. And, um, and I guess for me, um, strong women are complex human beings and um just like real women are complex human beings and my interest in creating a a character um for contemporary culture was to create a uh, a a recognizable human being a a, a a woman who is recognizable to me who is like other women that i know in my life um and not Two-dimensional, or one-dimensional, and and that includes many different attributes, um, including uh, what some people might consider weaknesses. That everything that a human being is uh, is um, interesting and complex and um, and women are multifaceted. And um, and the fact that Caitlin is a stable, single mother who is happy with her home life, happy with her professional life, and is not a uh, stereotypical science fiction fanboy tart or feminist or whatever, you know, the... the um, very often see um, that she is just a um, well-rounded human. Um, that is interesting to me and something I would like to see more of um, in film and TV. And therefore, uh,
2: why she is the way that she is. Here, here. I, I just wanted to say, add one thing to that. Um, Jillian had that base pretty well covered. Uh, And the one thing that was never far from my mind, and I've said this before and will continue to say it, is that the modern science fiction novel was created by a woman nearly 200 years ago, a very young woman, uh, Mary Shelley with Frankenstein. So we are playing in the sandbox that a woman created. And uh, you you just can't minimize uh, the importance of that. And so it was always in my mind, so that's that.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, On that note, a huge thank you to Gillian Anderson and Jeff Robin for coming out tonight. Thank you to everyone here for your wonderful questions. The book is A Vision of Fire, available on iBooks. And uh, thank you all very, very much.